Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We'd love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit us online at www.liferva.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you all here today. And uh, as uh, you know, last week we began a new series from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom. Uh, I want to say thank you to Pastor Thompson for allowing me the opportunity to, to do these three-week series. It's a real blessing to me to be able to be involved with that. And so in our first week, we talked primarily about the, the first third of Jesus' message that deals uh, with the establishment of his kingdom. And as we mentioned last week, many that day, just as many today, have an idea of what is meant by the word kingdom. Jesus' idea of kingdom was much different then their idea of kingdom, and sometimes even our idea of kingdom, is much different than what Jesus was referring to. Uh, he draws some major distinctions between those who certainly thought they were a part of the kingdom of God and what the people of his actual kingdom were to look like. Uh, he drew a target, really, on those in society who would have been considered religious. He targeted the scribes, the Pharisees, chief priests, and other religious leaders, rabbis, workers in the temple, anyone who was living by the letter of the law, but not allowing the spirit of the law to truly change their inner being, their inner workings of their life. Jesus made a lot of statements that challenged their understanding when he would say things like, you've heard it said, but I say. We talked about some of those last week. On the surface, those statements seem almost impossible to live up to when you recognize that he was really trying to challenge those who look down on others with judgment and condemnation for their mistakes or for the laws they'd broken. And he was endeavoring to establish that our best attempts to live up to the letter of the law would always fall short of what Jesus truly desired for the internal workings of our life and our heart to achieve. And so with last week's message, we specifically talked about how many of the things Jesus was suggesting felt different than the traditional way that they had thought about those things before or the way even our society teaches us to live today. The selfish lives we see all around us, the do-what's-best-for-you attitude of our world, give-no-thought mentality of, of what, what is different than what is going on, the give-no-thought to anyone but yourself of our society. And Jesus says things like love your enemy, do good to those who spitefully use you, persecute you. Uh, it's almost as if the kingdom Jesus came to establish was upside down and Last week we talked about the upside-down kingdom. and Now, the question I have today is, was it really upside-down? And I would say, no, it's really actually the way Jesus lived and the way he teaches us to live as well. Now, today we're going to look further at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the middle third of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, some key passages found in Matthew chapter 6. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't, we can follow along on the screen in just a moment. But beginning in Matthew 6... There's a shift in Jesus' message. A big part of Matthew 5, Jesus is drawing distinction between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, which was an outward righteousness based on legalistic rituals, but it really had little influence on the true nature of their heart. And that's why he makes statements like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, if you've had internally held hatred against your brother, slandered his good name, thought of all sorts of evil against him... Perhaps you've already committed the act of great malice in your heart. Or you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you sit around and think about someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse and you fantasize about them and you lust after them, you've committed the act already. Literally, Jesus is saying many of the Pharisees were calling themselves righteous because they didn't murder or they didn't commit adultery. But in essence, their hearts were filled with angry motives and lustful thoughts which when entertained, were just as sinful in the eyes of the Lord. So he's confronting this idea of outward appearance of righteousness versus actual inward righteousness. And in our own words today, we would call such a person, a person who showed themselves to be righteous on the outside, but inside was fully uh, engaged in sinful activity, we would call that person a what? A hypocrite. Someone who appears to be one way and declares themselves to be a, another way, but 
And actually, they're living two different lives. So in chapter 6, that's the word Jesus starts to use when referring to these people. And he begins to compare some of the spiritual activities, the spiritual disciplines that were important in his kingdom. But he wanted us to ensure that the reason for doing those things was accurate. He wanted to make sure that it was not a place that was filled with unrighteousness, but rather we were doing them from a place of purity, honesty, and an integrity. And so if I had to put a title on today's message, thank you, sir, I would call it Kingdom Motives. That's what I would call today's message, Kingdom Motives. How many of you know that motives matter? Well, for those of you that didn't know, motives matter. <laughs> You can do all the right things with the wrong motives, and it's not going to be pleasing to God. Now, you are welcome to do things with improper motives. People do it all the time. It's not going to get you in trouble. People in our world thrive by doing actions, good actions, with improper motives. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, the motives for doing good, the motives by which we live our lives has a huge impact on how God views our actions. So let's start with Matthew chapter 6. Let me show you what I mean. The first spiritual discipline that Jesus looks at is giving. Not so much the act of giving, but the motives for giving. Notice what he says in Matthew 6, beginning at verse 1. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need... Don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogue and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Now, the world to which Jesus was born emphasized the importance of taking care of those in need. If you read the Old Testament, many commands about caring for the poor and taking care of those in need. And for the Jews of that day, giving to those in need was one of the highest signs of righteousness that there was. In fact, the word translated here as give to someone in need was used synonymously with the word righteous. It was a right act that you were supposed to do. Giving to the needy was a symbol or the epitome of righteousness. Luz Ulrich in his commentary says this. He says, charitable donations were talked about publicly in the synagogue or at worship services. A person who made a large contribution was highly honored and was permitted to sit next to the rabbi at the synagogue. This form of self-promotion by means of charitable deeds was widespread. Cities with Greek influence were filled with inscriptions and statues of those who had earned the honor with contributions for the public good. Honestly, when I hear that, it sounds a lot like our world today, doesn't it? People are always honoring those who are charitable or honoring those who are, are, are philanthropic and give away to good causes. And there's nothing wrong with being generous. It's encouraged. Matter of fact, we encourage it here. Please give generously. As a matter of fact, giving, according to Scripture, is a requirement for those in the kingdom. Because you notice in verse 2, Jesus didn't say, if you give... Or should you consider giving? Or why don't you think about giving? He says, when you give. Not like it's, a, not like it's an option. Not like it's something you're going to think about doing. When you give. So when you give, don't do it with public fanfare. Right. Don't do it to be noticed or to receive accolades. Don't do it because you're going to get rewarded or honored by those in the public eye. Because if that's your motivation, then you have negated the blessing of heaven on your life because your motives were inaccurate. Jesus uses a terminology I found interesting, and I thought I'd share it with you today. I did some study, and it, really, it was really cool. It's just for learning purposes. It has nothing to do with my message. But notice verse 2. It says, when you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogue and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. So it seems like Jesus is painting a picture of like being paraded down the street, right? Like this person gave, doo, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Throw yourself a parade in honor of your giving. But actually in the synagogue, there was no paper money. There were no checks. There was no little yellow envelopes. There were only coins. And the receiving instrument was shaped much like a trumpet. A large bowl at the top that funneled down into a, a box that collected the collections. Sometimes, particularly to draw attention, people would toss their coins into the bowl 
and they would make their way down the funnel. You ever seen one of those things at the mall they used to have where kids would like put a coin in and it would circle around and around and around and around and around until it falls in? Well, they were doing that in the temple. And as they did it, it would make a, cl- a, cl- a loud clanging noise throughout the synagogue, sounding the trumpet. And many who desired attention would dramatically toss their coins one at a time, bringing attention to themselves as they did so. And as their coins rattled around, banging against the metal of the trumpet funnel, and then slowly making its way down the funnel into the box, in the temple alone there were 13 trumpet-shaped boxes that lined the walls. And those who gave would many times, particularly those who wanted to be seen, would give at each trumpet clanging all the way, bringing attention to not to God, but to themselves. It'd be like us having here, you bringing, us having 13 wooden boxes along the back wall, and you bringing 13 $1 bills and stopping at each one, make sure everybody saw you drop your dollar in the box. Jesus says, if you, like the hypocrites, insist on making a public spectacle of your gift, then whatever reward, whatever honor, whatever notoriety you gain from it, That's it. You've already received your blessing. But if you follow the command of Jesus, give generously but secretly. Jesus even uses this idiomatic expression that says, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now, obviously, that's impossible. We are not, we don't function that way. Maybe some people have half a brain and their other half doesn't work. I don't know. But none of us really can say, okay, my right hand's over here doing its own thing. My left hand's doing its own thing. I don't know which one's doing what. That's not true. But it's an expression that really encourages us to be secretive about our giving. It encourages us not to uh, do it in such a way that we're trying to draw attention to ourselves, And it encourages us to give in secret. Now, somebody go find out that you give? Absolutely, it's going to come out. People are going to know, oh yeah, that's a giver, that person gives. That's okay. What's your motive for giving? If your motive for giving is to be seen, patted on the back, applauded, promoted, lifted up, get, get accolades, then you've got the wrong motive. But if your giving is to bring glory to God then you've got the right motive. As a matter of fact, let's, let's compare the motives for giving today. Let's call it glorifying God versus glorifying self. When our giving, whether in the boxes in the back or to someone in need, is done in such a way that it is designed to bring glory to us, our motives are wrong. Everyone likes to be appreciated. Everyone likes to be thanked. But when we give to someone in need, we are simply responding to the prompts of our Father who gives us every good gift that we have and allows us the opportunity to be conduits of blessing into someone else's life. We would not have it to give were it not for the blessings of our great God. And if we didn't have it to give, you wouldn't be getting no accolades anyway. So you should not be motivated to bring glory to yourself when you give. It should be motivated out of bringing glory to God. If your generosity is designed to place attention anywhere other than the source of the gift to begin with, you must question your motives for giving. Remember, it's not an excuse not to give. Jesus tells us when we give, so you got to give. There are plenty of other scriptures that encourage generosity and giving. But remember, this is not an indictment on those who give so that they can also be blessed, right? Many people give and think, well, I'm going to give, and I know that the Lord is going to bless me back. There are plenty of scriptural references that we know that says when we give, God blesses it, right? Give, and it'll be given back to you. Press down, shaking together, running over. When you give of tithes and offerings, the Bible says the windows of heaven open up and pour out blessings into your life. And scriptures indicate the more generous you are, the more blessings you should receive. With what this is saying, though, is not saying you shouldn't give to receive. What it's saying is you need to check your motives for giving. If your giving is in honor of the God who saved you, who blessed you, who, when you were down and out, lifted you up. When you were broke, he made a way. When you had no hope, he filled you with hope. When you were at the end of your rope, he pulled you to safety. If it's in honor of an amazing Savior who died in your place, who gave life to you when you didn't deserve it, if it's in bringing glory to him, then your motives are correct. But if your motive is to bring honor or attention or to incur favor or to gain status or whatever it is, Other than bringing glory to God, then we need to check our motives because those motives take attention off of the source of the gift and place them squarely on us. And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be responsible for being my own source. Not as long as I serve a God who is more than able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. I want him to remain my source. Can you say amen? And so I want to bring glory to the source of all good things in my life. And by doing so, I'm going to have the right motives. And if I don't, then I need to check them. Can you say amen? 
All right, now at this point, Jesus moves off of giving and to the motives of prayer and fasting. So let's talk about prayer first. Now beyond this point in Jesus' message, he gives a beautiful model for prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's recited regularly all over the world. We're about to begin playing men's softball in a church league, and every night before the game, they're going to line us up on the first baseline or the third baseline and make them recite the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, When taught, it gives us a great model for sustained God-honoring prayer. We've taught through that before, and I'm sure we will again, but today I want to focus on what I feel was Jesus' point that he's making in this section, and let's consider our motives for prayer. Not how we pray, but why we pray. I love listening to children pray. When my kids were young, I loved hearing their sweet, innocent, and sincere prayers. I loved their effectiveness in prayer. Sometimes because of their innocence, they have a faith that really does move mountains. I remember laying on the couch one Sunday afternoon. I had a terrible headache. Uh, It was the first time I really had started suffering with migraines. Abigail was probably four years old. And she walked up behind me laying on the couch. Uh, she'd asked her mom, why is dad laying there with his head all you know, covered up trying to get the light out of his eyes? And Why is he laying there like that? And she said, well, d- dad has a headache. And she just walked over in her sweet little g- innocent way and put her hand on my head from behind and said, Jesus, take away daddy's headache. And she turned and walked away. And my headache went with her. Yeah. They weren't, she wasn't doing it because people were watching. She wasn't doing it because people thought she'd be spiritual if she did it. Somebody just told her this works, and she had enough faith to believe it would. Speaking of softball, I remember when Abigail was probably five, and we were out at a softball practice, and someone who shall remain nameless throws a softball in from the outfield, and no one was watching, and so they screamed, heads up, which is always the stupidest, most ignorant statement I've never understood why when a ball is coming at you in the air or anything else for that matter, we say heads up. Yes. You know, look up and it's in your face. I mean, it's terrible. So if you ever hear somebody say heads up, what you really need to do is head down, <laughs> right? I mean, they're really saying watch out, but for whatever reason, they get confused and they say heads up and you just need to duck your head because like, it's coming hard. So Pastor Thompson just so happened to be turning in that direction at the exact moment when he said heads up and the ball smashed directly into pastor's face and flattened his nose and we get him over to the bench he's bleeding and he's holding a towel over it and I'm making plans to take him to the hospital and everybody's looking for ice and you know all the things you're supposed to do and little Abigail walks into the dugout and she grabs me by the arm and she says dad don't you think y'all should pray from the mouths of babes right and so I gathered the guys around her and she placed her hand on pastor Thompson's head and she began to pray Just a sweet, sincere, honest prayer motivated by her love for her pastor. And we all prayed along. And then I got pastor in the van and I drove him to the hospital. But I watched on the way to the hospital as his nose, which was obviously broken and had been flattened across the side of his face, miraculously straightened up. And by the time we saw a doctor, it was determined it was not broken. And he was able to go home and no problems at all. (laughs) Prayers of a child, right? But something happens when we get older. We go through life. Maybe our faith gets challenged. Maybe we don't always trust as much. Then on top of that, our prayers sometimes, if we're not careful, they become formulaic, less conversational, insincere, something we do out of habit, maybe driven by performance. Some see prayer as a sort of emergency hotline. When I'm in trouble, I call on Jesus. And that's good that you know where to call when you're in trouble. But prayer was meant to be so much more. For others, prayer may be a means by what we, which we get what we want. Jesus did say, ask and you shall receive, and you have not because you ask not. But for many, if that's the only time you pray is when you have a need and it becomes a recitation of I want, I want, I want, prayer was meant to be so much more. Still others, prayer is absent from their life altogether. It could be for many reasons, a lack of discipline, doubt that anything will happen, lack of sensing the nearness of God, maybe they're cold spiritually, they're too busy in life, they got hurt, lots of reasons, right? Lots of reasons why they may not pray. Yet still others see prayer as a way to showcase their spirituality, 
It's not so much about God, but rather about parading their Christian vocabulary or even the depth of their prayer language so that everyone hears and will be amazed by their connection to God. In this next part of the passage, that's who Jesus is desiring to teach about because he conveys to us that members of his kingdom, they do pray, and they pray with the right motives. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they're ever going to get. Not their prayers are going to be answered. That's the reward. They got it. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. When Jesus talks about this, He's not necessarily referring to the activity of prayer. He has an assumption that you're going to pray. That's why He says when you pray. But rather talking about the motive behind the discipline of prayer. Jesus wants everything members of His kingdom do to come from a sincere and genuine heart. He again is combating the so-called righteous groups of people who had influence over the religious practices of the Jewish people. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the Sadducees. Jesus here is not only teaching his disciples. He's pointing out the fallacies of those who really are listening on the fringe of the sermon. They're hanging out around the bottom of the mountain, reaching for them with with, with those that were stuck in these religious traditions. And he's desiring for them to change. And it was effective for some. Think about it. Later on, we find out a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin court. They both come to know Jesus, not only respecting Jesus, but becoming followers of Jesus. They come to him from these religious circles, and so Jesus even had a purpose for why he was laying it out like this. He was trying to call them from their condition. So understand, when it came to prayer, there were few people who prayed as much as the Jews. They prayed. And so that's why he's saying, when you pray. This is how you need to do it, not with the wrong motives. They memorized prayers. They scheduled times to pray throughout the day. They had specific prayers for specific occasions and situations. Read your Bible through the Old Testament. You will see throughout it that the priority is placed highly upon prayer. If you simply read the Psalms, it is filled with petitions, thanksgivings, intercessions, imprecatory prayers, which if you don't know what imprecatory prayers are, last week when I talked about how praying for your enemies, I wouldn't encourage you to pray that like a flower pot falls off a windowsill on their head while they're walking down the street. That's an imprecatory prayer, okay? It's prayers for bad things to happen to bad people. But on and on, there are prayers throughout the scripture. Prayer was important and a huge part of their life. And Jesus, again, was taking something that they were very familiar with and asking them, to build truths on top of the foundation that was already laid. The prayer life for the religious leader in Jesus' day was there. It was existent. They did not not pray. But it had taken a turn. It had gone from a genuine pursuit of God to a showcase for one's religious ability. So Jesus' challenge is really to the motive for their prayer life. So if we were to list this in a comparison today, I would say your motives for prayer either come down to the pursuit of God versus the pursuit of attention. And they'll put that on the screen for you there, so if you're taking notes. The pursuit of God versus the pursuit of attention. And the first way Jesus addresses it is in verse 5. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they're going to get. The word hypocrite, it actually comes from a word that refers to actors on a stage. And the religious leaders prayed for the same reason that they gave to the poor. Just as an actor wants attention when he's on the stage, they prayed to be seen, to draw attention, to get applause from the crowd. A perfect example of this can be seen really in the dichotomy that Jesus presents in Luke chapter 18, verse 10 through 13. It says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. I thank God that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of all my income. And then the tax collector, he stands at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, 
for I'm a sinner. Do you see the comparison? The Pharisee in this story, he didn't desire to pursue God. He wasn't genuinely seeking to draw near to the presence of God, to commune with God. His prayer was self-oriented, boasting of his spiritual disciplines and his own abilities. No doubt those around him thought, hey, that dude's super spiritual. And yet it was the tax collector all alone, sincere, genuine, honest. And it was his prayer that pleased God. Notice verse 14. It says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't it funny how somehow people get the idea that their prayer is going to impress people? Even today, no one in this room, of course, but there are people who will use their prayers to showcase their Christianese or their Christian vocabulary to seek to show people how close they are to God. I pray three hours a day. Well, good for you. I go to work. <laughs> Notice that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says the Pharisees, they love to do this. They love to do what? They don't love to pray. They don't love to pursue God. They love to pursue the attention of people. While they could be interacting with the creator of all things when their time of prayer, they would rather, however, speak to the air and receive the praise of their insignificant peers. Adding on to the motives for prayer, notice what Jesus says next. He says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. During the days of Jesus, there was much influence from other cultures. Some of the influence had begun to seep into Jewish culture. And Greeks were famous for sitting during the days of Jesus before statues of their many gods and repeating phrases over and over and over again, trying to coerce and manipulate their gods into answering them. If you ever read the story of Elijah with the, with the uh, prophets of Baal, and they're down, they've made a, uh, an altar to, the, to their gods and their uh, they, they spent from morning to night just dancing around, spouting out babbly, babbling words, trying to get God to, their God to respond to them. They thought if they simply prayed enough, then the gods would reluctantly give in and grant them whatever they were asking for. But Jesus tells us that when it comes to being in his kingdom, that we shouldn't ramble on and on trying to coerce God, twist his arm to give me what I want. Why? Your father knows what you have need of before you even ask. Some may immediately say, then why pray? If God knows what we need before we ask him, then why are we even asking? Again, this segment of the message is not designed to negate the need for prayer, but rather to challenge the motives for prayer. This isn't designed to tell you we shouldn't have corporate prayer here at church, that you shouldn't come home first Wednesday and pray with all of your brothers and sisters. It is saying, however, that if your motive for praying in front of everybody is to be seen by everybody, then we need to check your motives. Prayer is not just repeating, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I get this, I need this, do this, do this, do this. There's nothing wrong with praying a long time or praying with persistence. The point is that prayer was not meant to be robotic and meaningless. Our prayers need to be genuine, sincere, and with substance. They need to be built around a connection to God and growing a relationship with Him. If you were in a relationship with somebody... And every conversation you had with them was a constant barrage of I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need, do this, do this, do this. If that's the only communication you had with that person, how long would it be before you weren't communicating at all? I wouldn't want to talk to you. Because if all you do is nag me about the things that you want and the things that you need, there's no relationship being built there. There's no opportunity for me to dialogue with you. There's no chance for me to share with you my heart. All I'm hearing is your laundry list. Yes, God does want to hear your needs, your desires. But he also wants to express himself to you, to share his plans and his desires for your life. That's what prayer is designed to do. It's a dialogue between you and the creator of the universe. Another thing to keep in mind, we're commanded to pray but we also need to realize that God knows what's best for us. We express what we want in prayer, but our attitude to God must always be not my will, but thine be done. 
let your will be done in my life as it is on as it is in heaven let it be done here on earth rt france says this if god does not need to be informed of our needs why does he expect us to tell him about them true christian spirituality has traditionally found the answer in a concept of prayer not as the communication of information and not as a technique for getting things from god by by using more words and getting more results but rather as an expression of the relationship of trust which follows from knowing God as our Father. We understand this. Those of you that have children, you know that there are times, maybe none of your kids, but my kids, when they were little, sometimes now, will tell me what they want over and over and over and over no matter how many times they ask, I know that I'm not going to do it. Because we are called upon as parents to do what is best, not what is asked. And so the building of trust with our Father allows us, yes, to offer our needs to Him. Yes, to express our wants to Him. But understand, if that's the sum total of your prayer, what you are missing out on is the beauty of a trusting relationship with your father where he is more than just Amazon Prime. When you place your order, it arrives the next day. There was once, I'm trying, brother, I'm trying. There was once a huge Christian concert being put on outdoors by a large Christian organization in a rural area. About an hour before the concert, clouds began to gather, and it was obviously going to rain. The group organizing the event, they gathered together and they began to fervently pray that God would hold back the rain, stop the rain, stop the rain. And in the midst of the prayer, someone said, I wonder how many farmers right now are thanking God for the blessed rain that they are about to receive. See, we're called upon to pray and we're called upon to simultaneously recognize, however, that God still has the best answers for us even when it doesn't correspond to what you want. I often laugh at sporting events directly following the event. There's always someone who's interviewed who thanks God for giving them the victory that day. And I often think, do they ever stop to wonder about the guy on the other team who prayed for victory as well and he's walking off under a cloud of defeat? Does God love him less? Does God not care about him? Well, if he's not a cowboy, I understand, but... <laughs> Does God even care about it at all? Probably not, or the Cowboys would win more. Um, <laughs> and Eagles and Giants would lose all the time. Woohoo! No. So our motives for prayer. We don't pray to get attention. We don't pray to twist God's arm to get it our way. We pray to pursue God, to commune with God to develop relationship with God, to align ourselves, our attitude, our will, our desires to the will of God. Amen. That's what prayer is really all about. So let's talk for a moment about the other spiritual discipline that Jesus talks about. We're going to talk about fasting. Everybody loves to talk about fasting right before lunch. Let's skip down to verse 16. It says, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they're going to get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face. Then no one will notice that you're fasting, except your father, who knows what you do in private, and your father, who sees everything, will reward you. Fasting is really the third and final example that Jesus gives of these spiritual disciplines that the Pharisees had almost made a mockery of. They'd been horrible examples of spiritual leadership when it came to giving, praying, and now fasting. The point that he's trying to make today is this. When you practice godliness, righteousness, you should always do it for the approval of God and not for the approval of people. Again, just like with giving and prayer, notice that the expectation is that members of his kingdom will fast. He, again, doesn't say if you fast, if you get around and you think you're spiritual enough to try it. He says when you fast. Jesus isn't condemning the practice of fasting. He is frustrated by the motives of the spiritual leaders in regard to fasting. They weren't wrong in the practice of fasting. 
But their error was in the motive of the reason behind the fasting. And that's what Jesus is trying to tackle. Understand the purpose of fasting. Fasting is a means to draw near to God and to discover satisfaction in him alone. To deny ourself and to embrace reliance upon God. Fasting is a discipline that one does to move toward contentment in God alone. Fasting points to the fact that God is more important than one of the most vital aspects of the human life, food. And everybody say amen to that. It expresses our desire and need for God over and above every physical pleasure and necessity that we have on earth. So we recognize the importance of fasting. Jesus did too. Jesus was not complaining that they fasted but rather the motives that they had for fasting. So let's look today, if you were to compare them in a, a side by side, the motives for fasting, seeking to please God versus seeking to please people. Seeking to please God versus seeking to please people. A question to consider, if all my good works were noticed only by God and all I received was the pleasure of his gratitude, would that be enough to satisfy you? If I had nothing to my name except the realization that I was a pleasing member of the kingdom of God, a child of God, would I be content and satisfied? Jesus obviously wants our answer to be a resounding yes. But for many, they do all their religious activity for the applause of men. Notice what Jesus says about the practice of fasting. When you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, verse 16. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. Many in Jesus' day would wear sackcloth, ratted up clothing made from bags, and cover their faces with ashes so everyone would, not, would take note that they were fasting. They had taken a practice that God had commanded when he called the entire nation to a time of fasting where everyone was called upon to humble themselves before God. They had taken that national practice and now were perverting it and using it, not in humility but in spiritual pride, drawing attention to themselves. Contrast that with what Jesus asked of us instead. He says, when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father. Instead of appearing gloomy and ungroomed so that people will know you're fasting, Jesus tells his disciples, take a shower, clean yourself up, comb your hair, put on clean clothes. Go about your life as usual. Don't draw attention to yourself for your fasting. Why? So that your fasting can be solely about you and God. The only two things in the whole picture that matter, you and God. Again, fasting allows you to draw closer to God, and fasting alone pleasures God, and, and he's the only one. So it doesn't mean if someone finds out you're fasting that your fast is ruined, right? If you tell somebody I'm fasting, that doesn't mean the fast is over. But John Piper said this, being seen fasting and fasting to be seen are not the same. Being seen fasting is a mere external event. But fasting to be seen is a self-exalting motive of the heart. People will find out you're fasting. That's going to happen. But when you go out of your way to show how spiritual you are because you're fasting, completely different. Again, it's, not about, it's, it's completely about the motive. If you've been around church for very long, it's always amusing to me when people are fasting and they want you to know. If you were, Pastor, if you were wanting to go to lunch with me today, I can't because I'm fasting. <laughs> I haven't had lunch with that person ever. But today, just in case, Pastor, I wanted you to be aware, I'm fasting. Whenever we call for a church fast, and we've learned not everybody's able to join us on a church-wide fast, and we've also learned that people sacrifice different things. But there's always this self-consciousness that you feel because you don't know who might be fasting or who might be suspicious of your plate of Panera sweetbreads on a fast day. Let's not do that to each other. Those suspicious looks or questions like, oh, I guess you aren't fasting, are many times the attitudes that create the wrong motives. I'm fasting for God, but I got to make sure pastor knows I'm fasting because I don't want him to be displeased with me. Let's trust that people are doing what they can. Let people work it out for themselves. We teach about spiritual disciplines. Now, it's your responsibility to live spiritual disciplines. Because if we are in any way causing people to feel less spiritual because they aren't quite at your level, when we are, what we're ultimately doing is creating an environment that encourages wrong motives and the pleasing of men more than the pleasing of God. Several times Jesus has said that 
when you do these things with the right motives, whether it's fa fasting or prayer or giving, what you do in secret, or really when you do it for an audience of one, and that's who we need to think about today, you inherit rewards. What's the reward? All of us want to do things and be rewarded. I mean, that's a given, right? We're human. This is really the one thing that truly matters. If God is all we want, if he is who we long for, if your motives are right, if he is sufficient, then the praise and accolades of people are unimportant, and the reward of knowing that we have found our satisfaction and sufficiency in the amazing grace of God is more than enough. That is our reward today, to know that we have pleased God. Um, no, I don't want to share the Wi-Fi password. I'm sorry. Someone's asking me to share the Wi-Fi password in the middle of my message. <laughs> Good luck getting it from me ever. <laughs> If the worship team would come on that note, because I think I've kind of spent my time. I started today's message with a statement, motives matter. And in the kingdom of God, our motives are so important. We can do all the right things, but with the wrong motives, and our best attempts at righteousness will be influenced by the unrighteousness of our heart. Jesus calls us to a life of dif disciplines. Giving, caring for those in need, prayer, communicating with God, seeking his will over our own, fasting, placing him above ourselves, putting our basis of needs at the feet of the one who is all-sufficient. These things that he calls us to must be done, not to glorify self, not to gain attention from others, and certainly not to please others, but rather to bring glory to God, to pursue God for the purpose of relationship and to please him by honoring the sufficiency of his grace in our lives. If you'd all stand with me today. As we approach the end of our time together, I want to invite you for a moment to turn inward. David makes this great statement says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. and Lead me in the way everlasting. It's a prayer I think you ought to pray every day. God, search me and know me. If you're really serious about making sure your motives are right, asking God to search you is the best way to find out. Because God will point out the things that are wrong. He'll confirm the things that are right, and he'll love on you through the process. With him, there's no condemnation. With him, there's no look at you and look how bad you're doing, but rather just a responsibility that he puts back on us. Hey, these are the things I'm showing you. Now let's work on them, and I'll give you grace to make it through. And so today, as you look inward and you ask God to search your heart, I dare you, ask him to point out the wrong motives in me. Lord, what are the things in me that I'm doing for the wrong reasons? Let my motives be pure before you. He wants your motives to be pure before him because guess what? He made it a huge part of his message on the Sermon on the Mount. He wants you to have right motives because if your motives are pure, your actions will follow suit. And then the reasons for your actions will be lived out and he will get glory from them. I want to live a pure life before the Lord. Can you say amen? As they get ready to sing, I want to open this altar today. And if you'd like to come, as you come, I want to encourage you, come with those words on your lips. Search me, O God, and know me. Lord, if there are impure motives in me, I want to get rid of them, and I want to serve you from a pure heart. If you'd come today, and let's pray those kind of prayers together as they begin to sing. I believe God would honor that by allowing his glory to fill your life and do the things in you he desires.
so simple. Jesus doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't make it hard. He just simply asks us to surrender our lives to him and invite him to be a part of who we are. To look at the past that we've lived and say, God, I don't like that. I don't want to live that way anymore. And to surrender our hearts and our minds to him, asking him to be Lord of our life. And so if you're here today and you don't know him, I want to invite you to do exactly that. It's a simple prayer. It's a first step. There's many other things we do to live out our lives for Jesus Christ. But that first step, sometimes it's the hardest step you'll ever make. Because it's taking a step from one kingdom and moving to a new kingdom. It's stepping out of the world and into the kingdom of heaven. Asking God to take control and to be a part of your life. And so I invite you to do that today. The Bible says if one person does it, the angels in heaven rejoice over that sinner who's repented. And so I ask you today and I invite you to do that. 
to let the Lord know, I want to be a part of this kingdom that you've talked about today. For everybody else today, you know I like to close out messages with some statements of declaration, things that kind of cement the message in my mind. And when I walk out of here, things I'll remember. And so I want to invite everyone in the house to do this with me today. Uh, close your eyes, keep them open, whatever you want to do. Father, I thank you. Your word challenges me today. Help my motives to be pure. When I give, let me remember that my gift is meant to glorify you. When I pray, let me remember that my prayer helps me pursue you and your plan for my life. When I fast, let me remember that I don't fast for the applause of men, but I fast to please you alone. In every area of my life, let me remember that my motives matter. Let my motives be pleasing to you. As a member of your kingdom, I desire most of all to please you and to bring glory to your great name. In Jesus' name, let's worship him all over this house for what he's doing today in his word. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. Hey, thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe to this channel so you never miss one of our videos or live streams in the future. Also, take a moment and share this with a friend. Be sure to join us 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. each week live as we celebrate Jesus together here at Life Church. God bless you.